Hello, fellow foodies, and welcome back. You're listening to season five of Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. Today on the show, I'm really excited to speak with one of my personal favorite guests again, Dr. Naja Chek. If you're a longtime listener of the show, you may recall my interview with Dr. Chek in November of 2020 on the chemical signatures of plants. Back then, we talked about mass spectrometry and some really fascinating medicinal insights on plants like kratom, golden seal, and more. I invited Dr. Chek back to the show to catch up with her on her work and learn more about some of her new groundbreaking research on echinacea and the study of synergy. Dr. Chek and I share not only a common love of medicinal plants, but we're also both moms juggling the balance between teaching and running large research groups at work and raising some really amazing little humans at home. But before we begin, let me share a little bit more about Dr. Chek. Her day job is as Patricia Sullivan Professor of Chemistry at the University of North Carolina Greensboro, where she works with a dynamic group of students and research scientists to identify medicinally active molecules from plants and fungi. Her group has done some seminal work demonstrating strategies to understand the synergistic interactions between plant constituents. In the cracks in between, as I mentioned, Dr. Chek is a mom, a writer, and she's also a community gardener. Her piece on being a mother and a scientist at the same time was recently published in Motherwell. Dr. Chek is the recipient of the 2011 Jack L. Beale Award from the Journal of Natural Products and the 2017 Thomas Norgood Award for Undergraduate Research Mentorship. She's a principal investigator for the National Center of Complementary and Integrative Health and the Office of Dietary Supplements funded Center for High Content Functional Annotation of Natural Products. She's also the co-director of the Analytical Core for the Center of Excellence for Natural Product Drug Interactions and the co-director of the Medicinal Chemistry Collaborative. So you get an idea of just how many accolades um, she has as a professor and researcher. Um, so she's best known, though, again, for studying syner synergy in medicinal plants and especially this really exciting work on echinacea and golden seal. Um, and just as importantly, Nadja is also known as a champion of shifting the culture in science to be more inclusive and supportive of those who are routinely marginalized in the field. So thanks so much for coming on the show, Nadja. It's really great to see you. It's really great to be here, Cassie. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Well, I'm really looking forward to, talk to talking to you not only now, but also in June, because you're going to be giving a plenary talk. Um, on plant chemistry at the joint conference of the Society for Economic Botany and Society of Ethnobiology. And for all the listeners out there, this is a must-tend event. Um, we have early registration that's opening until April 15th, both for in-person and virtual attendance. And you can find all of those links on um, at SEBotany on Twitter, or you can hit the um, QR code that we're putting up on the screen for any of you that are watching on YouTube, or you can head over to my Linktree account at CQuave to find the link to the conference. So Nadja, what are you most excited about with the meeting? Oh, well, I'm very excited to come to the meeting for many reasons. There's gonna be some awesome workshops, some great talks, looking forward to connecting with other people that are interested in botany and biology and chemistry. And I'm most excited about the keynote lecture from Dr. Robin Wall-Khmer, who's gonna be 
um, talking about her book, Braiding Sweetgrass, which probably many of your listeners are familiar with. Mm -hmm. And um, it's going to be all I can do not to just fangirl her the entire conference. So yeah, I'm very excited about that. Yeah, I think I'm going to be fangirling over many people at this conference, including yes. you. So oh, yeah, fangirl. <laughs> there we go. Oh, it's going to be it's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be a lot of fun. And you know, I think what's great about this meeting too is you don't have to be a scientist expert in the field to enjoy it because we have this awesome um, virtual attendance option as well, and you can tune in from the comfort of home and just hear all these amazing speakers. Um, you know, explore their science. Yeah. What an awesome yeah. option to have. It's so great to have that accessibility. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's jump into discussing some of your cool work on echinacea. Um, if I remember right, you and echinacea actually go back a long way. Tell us, how did you get started in your interest with this particular plant? Well, that is a good question. Um, actually, I have been interested in echinacea most of my life. My parents have a seed business in Oregon and um, sell seeds for medicinal plants. And one of the very first seeds that I ever worked with as a child was echinacea. And my dad, who's kind of an, an expert self-taught botanist, if that's an acceptable label, um, mm -hmm. was very interested in echinacea and would make echinacea tinctures and use them to treat our ailments when we were kids. So if anybody's ever consumed echinacea before, you know that it causes your mouth to buzz like a bazillion bees at once. And um, so I have basically grew up with my mouth buzzing from echinacea every time I was sick. Um, and that was something that intrigued me as to what was going on there. There's something chemical that's underlying that phenomenon. And that's something that I've studied in my lab since. And I'll also add that growing echinacea was one of the ways that I paid to for college. So one of our um, one of our echinacea harvests actually paid in, in its entirety for my first year of university. So echinacea and I've kind of had an intertwined <laughs> relationship throughout my life. Yeah, no kidding. That's amazing. I don't I don't think many people get to say that, that the plant that they're studying in the lab helped pay for their college. I yeah, I'm very appreciative to echinacea for many reasons. That's great. Well, tell us, okay, we know that you're a plant chemist. We know that you look at these mixtures of molecules found in plants. How are you using these chemical tools to investigate echinacea? Well, we have done a lot of different studies on echinacea over the years, and one of our major ways of looking at it is to, we sort of look at two pieces whenever we're studying a plant. One is the chemistry, the chemical signatures of what molecules we can detect in the plant. So we use mass spectrometry for that, and we're trying to both look at what molecules are there and how much is there, and then we attempt to correlate that to what it does to the mm -hmm. in the human body. And sometimes that's a tricky question because you can't just start giving things willy-nilly to humans. Um, so we often have models in like a Petri dish or a test tube where we have cells growing and we look at what the extracts do to those cells and we measure different mixtures of the molecules from the plant and then correlate that um, activity that we see to the chemical composition. That's very cool. So as a kid, you were getting these tinctures to treat various ailments. What do we know about the pharmacological properties of echinacea? Do we know how it works or what is it generally used for in folk medicine? 
So in folk medicine, there's a long history of use of echinacea, which really, it's a North American plant, um, indigenous to the plains of North America. So it was used by indigenous peoples all across North America and in into both in the United, what is now the United States, Canada, and sort of Northern Mexico. Um, and used for a variety of things from treating toothaches, which you could see kind of goes along with that tingling numbing sensation mm -hmm. to um, snake bites, to actually being used as um, also, there's a game. I don't know if you have seen echinacea flowers, but they have like a very prickly cone on them. And so mm -hmm. people would play a game where they would like connect the flowers together and then try to have a tug of war with them. So there's oh, all cool. kinds of, integrated use of echinacea by indigenous cultures. And then the history on this is really interesting because um, sometime around the late 1800s, the eclectics um, who were using, sort of developing a, a pharmacopoeia of North American plants for use in medicine, uh, adopted echinacea based on indigenous use. And it was very po much popularized at that time. And it, became later used mostly because it was imported into Germany. Um, and there was some research with German scientists who found that it, at least in the test tube kinds of experiments that I was talking about earlier with immune cells grown in test tubes, it seemed to stimulate the immune cells. And so there was a whole um, branch of research that has studied effects of echinacea on the immune system. And um, some of the work that we have done and others have done, though, have had really unexpected results in that it's not just molecules from the plant that have an impact on immune cells. It's also microbes living within the plant. Mm. So essentially the plant's microbiome that seems to cause some of the effects that we see, at least in, um, in a test tube. And what that might mean for humans is another really interesting question. So something that I'm looking forward to talking to more about at the conference. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's amazing. I mean, I think that's so true for so much of plant chemistry is, you know, I like to think of it as like an onion, as you peel back one layer, yes. and you find something and you peel back the next layer, you're like, oh, no, wait, there are these other molecules and the other layers. Wait, who's making these molecules? Who's is, it the plant? Yeah. is it the fungus? You know, maybe share with us a little bit more about that. Like, do all plants have a microbiome? I mean, I think it's becoming better understood that humans do. Um, in different parts of our body, we have different organisms living. Is that the same for plants? How does that Absolutely. work? Absolutely. Yeah. So plants have organisms living on their surfaces and inside of them, uh, just like we do. And the role of that plant microbiome in altering human health is not something that's fully understood, but it's certainly true that we, every time we consume plants, even if we're not consuming medicinal plants, just eating a salad, for example, mm -hmm. you're getting thousands of microbes when you do that. And so what is really interesting is that the composition of the plant microbiome is very reflective of the environment where it was grown. So it's not so much that necessarily echinacea has a totally different microbiome than say a carrot would. It's more that the, the microbes that you find in a plant are reflective of, of how it was grown, where it was grown, what kinds of microbes were in the soil, what kinds of microbes were in the air. And so depending on the sources of our food, we're actually getting exposed to different microbes. And there's a really great question there as to how that might impact our health and how as we shift from these sort of 
agricultural practices that were much more specified to certain microenvironments to commercial agriculture where there's less introduction of microbes because we're using synthetic fertilizers, there may be some important implications of that for human health as well. So our microbiome yeah. interacting with plant microbiomes is something I'm super interested in these days. Yeah. And I feel like it's such a, a new area of science to be, to be investigated. I mean, well, we, we've talked a lot about this concept of plant microbes that help push along fermentation of mm -hmm. our plants, right? So if you think about, you know, when you make your kimchi or your sauerkraut, that's because yep. of the microbes living on the cabbage leaves, yep. um, put into the right conditions of the salty, you know, solution, and that allows those to kind of grow and flourish. But this aspect of, of microbes playing such a heavy role in, you know, medicinal plants, I think is something that we really haven't tapped into so much. Can you tell us a little bit about how how does one even determine or, or can you grow the microbes that are found in echinacea? How do you how do you find those or how do you separate the chemistry? Maybe not all these answers yeah. are known yet, but yeah. I thought I'd ask. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a great question. So we have done studies where we've grown the microbes separate from the plant. If you just take um, a cross section of a root from echinacea and put it on a petri dish, you will see all kinds of microbes growing out on that dish, even if mm. it's a sterile root. So if you took the root of an echinacea plant and completely sterilized the surface and then cut it open and put it on a Petri dish, you would see fungi and bacteria growing all over that Petri dish. And those fungi and bacteria are not all of the bacteria that are in the plant, of course, because only some of them will grow in that environment, but you'll still get a bunch of different microbes just from a small cross-section of root. And so that's one of the studies that we have done is to collect parts of plants grown in different environments and look at what microbes we can grow out of them. Uh, we've also done studies where we've intentionally gotten rid of the microbes and grown echinacea in a sterile environment and then looked mm -hmm. at what it does to the immune cells after having its microbiome taken away. Um, I will say that echinacea does not like you to remove its microbiome. It likes its microbiome just like we like our microbiome, um, but you can grow it without the microbes. And what we observed that was really fascinating was that we saw totally different effects on the immune cells for echinacea plants that have been grown without their microbiome. So, um, really so do you see differences in their chemical, when you say like immune cells, what do you mean there? Are, are we talking about differences in kind of chemical defenses or? Well, so a lot of the, a lot of the research on echinacea has hypothesized that echinacea works by stimulating immune cells. So in stimulating sort of a inflammatory response that would help to ward off infections. But mm -hmm. it turns out that a lot of times we don't really want to stimulate cells to ward off infections. What we want to do is suppress the inflammation that comes along with infections. And so there's been all this controversy over is echinacea even maybe dangerous for use when someone has an infection? I don't know if, if you were up on some of that with the COVID-19 pandemic, but there was this worry that, oh, maybe echinacea stimulates the immune system. And that's kind of like the cytokine storm that you see with an infection, mm -hmm. and maybe that's undesirable. But it turns out that the molecules from echinacea don't really stimulate immune cells. It's bacterial molecules that are showing up in those extracts that are stimulating the immune cells. Interesting. And just for clarification for everybody listening, when you say 
immune cells, you're talking about human cells. It's Absolutely. not that the plant has. Yeah. Okay. So you've Thank got you the, for clarifying the, that, Cassie. No, yeah. no. Absolutely. We're getting deep in the weeds now. So, so the idea is you're growing immune cells in a Petri dish, you're adding echinacea to it. And what do the cells do? And how does that relate to what your immune cells might do to protect you from an infection? And sort of the spoiler alert of our research on that is that some of the molecules from echinacea actually suppress the effect of the activity of the immune cells that is potentially associated with inflammation. So that's mm -hmm. a good thing because if you're sick and you have yeah. this inflammatory response, you want to suppress that. And that some of the results people thought were due to echinacea stimulating immune cells was actually due to microbes in the plant. Wow. You can imagine that our immune cells are primed to respond if they get exposed to bacteria. That's mm -hmm. one of their jobs is to protect us yeah. from bacteria. So, yeah. So if you, um, if you expose... Uh, if you take a Petri dish and put bacteria in it, immune cells go crazy. And that's not too surprising. Um, yeah. That's amazing. That's amazing. So here we have this plant and you're, you know, I think all plants as we, as we've discussed have this microbiome and what you're finding is that in the absence of the microbiome, the pharmacological properties of the plant are different than when you have a plant growing with its microbiome, basically. Absolutely. Yeah. I think one of the big questions we have is how that translates to a human, because obviously a petri mm -hmm. dish is very different than a human. And that's one of the hardest things, as you well know, Cassie, yeah. with these kinds of studies is making that leap. Um, but a lot of our immune response happens in our digestive system. And what mm -hmm. we consume is sometimes coming in direct contact with the immune cells in our digestive system. So there's a good chance that there's some relevance there of what's happening in a Petri dish to what might happen in a human, but we can't really make that jump necessarily. Yeah. Well, I think studies like this speak to the importance of ecosystem dynamics, right? In both our agricultural systems, in our food systems, in our medicine systems. I mean, some of the things that kind of keep me up at night, <laughs> there are a lot of things that keep me up at night. <laughs> when you know too, a little bit too much about different things in science, I think there are, there are, there are fodder for nightmares sometimes. But one of the things that keeps me up at night is, you know, the, the, the reckless heavy use of some of these agrochemicals in our food systems. And, you know, what is mass spraying of fungicides doing to our fields and, you know, or herbicides and pesticides and all these chemicals that we're putting into the environment to grow our crops and kind of monocultures. But, you know, is there some other downstream effect that we haven't quite caught yet when it comes to how this is influencing the quality of our foods and the quality of our medicines? I mean, Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's not something I was really expecting to study when we started out working on echinacea, but it's just kind of where the research led us. And mm -hmm. I think there's some really interesting questions about how we grow our food and how it changes the microbes that are present in our food and how that might alter our health in terms of what we consume. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's what's so cool about the kind of work that you do is that you have the skills and the equipment to be able to really read that language of nature and really to see, you know, what are the chemical signatures of, of these food ingredients or medicine ingredients and how do they change under these different um, conditions? Absolutely. And I would say we're always just picking up the tip of the iceberg because it's so complicated. The chemistry is so complicated and the biological response is so complicated. But even the tip of that iceberg is super interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
So let's talk about the echinacea flower itself. So we have a little image here on the right of, of um, I don't know if this is all the stages of echinacea development, perhaps. But yes, it is. You know, yep. Okay, great, great. So so with echinacea, what part of the plants used to make the medicine? So these are known as cone flower. Are we actually using the flowers or is it leaves? Is it the roots? Like what parts are used for medicine making? Actually, people use leaves, roots, and flowers for medicine. And you can find echinacea products that include the different parts of the plants. Um, so yeah, it's all, the whole thing is used. Mm -hmm. Great. And I know that um, you mentioned the use of tinctures earlier on when we were talking about, you know, how you, how this was used as, you know, when you were a child. Um, what is a tincture and how does that differ, for example, from a tea or some other way that people might be familiar with for making medicinal teas? Or, or sure. Medicinal yeah. So a tincture is an alcoholic extraction. So essentially mm -hmm. the plant material is exposed to alcohol such as vodka or Everclear or something like that, um, that is used to extract out some of the active principles. And the nice thing about that is that it's a great way to preserve the plant material. Um, but of course, for some people who prefer not to consume alcohol, even in the very small amounts that are in the dosage that you might get from a tincture, you can also make extracts in something like glycerol that is non-alcoholic. Um, and then you, a tea would just be, would be similar, except that instead of using alcohol, you're using hot water. Um, and often people make teas themselves instead of, instead of um, buying the tea off the shelf pre-made. So you would buy the plant material or grow the plant material even better and then mm -hmm. expose it to hot water and drink it. Uh, and if we think about how echinacea was used, you know, in, in indigenous medicine, um, probably not as a alcoholic extract, but either consuming the root or making a tea out of the root would probably be more consistent with that usage. Cool. All right, let's, let's take the conversation now a little bit deeper into the chemical complexities of this plant. So we have a couple of factors already. We know that we've got the plants making molecules. We know the microbes living inside the plant are making molecules. And we know that there's something happening with these molecules that elicits a pharmacological effect that we can see and measure in a, in a Petri dish. Um, now, it's a lot easier to study this if we're talking about one molecule. How does one go about studying these mixtures and how do you determine if there are different components in the mixture that are working together to get this, this desired effect? Yeah, that's such a great question, Cassie. So, you know, one of the sort of, I guess, criticism that's been levied against the field of natural products research historically is that there's this focus on, can you find a single molecule mm -hmm. in a plant that's useful to make a drug, which maybe sometimes you can. And we've got some great examples of that in drugs like Taxol and artemisinin that are used to treat things like cancer and malaria that are very successful and save thousands upon thousands of lives. And yet many times when we look at the traditional use of plants specifically, they're being used not as a mixture, as a single molecule, but as a mixture. And so a lot of the work in my research group has been focused around this question of how can you identify the multiple players in a mixture that are important for a biological effect? And that is a question that requires some complex mathematical modeling, um, an ability to characterize the mixtures and look at as many constituents as you can detect at once. 
um, a field that we often call metabolomics, which focuses on looking at an entire metabolome, an entire group of small molecules that an organism makes instead of looking at just one at a time. And really being clever about designing the experiment in such a way that you look both at complex mixtures and at subsets of those mixtures so that you can start to narrow down which constituents of the mixture are important in the activity. And that's something our group has been working on for a long time and continues to work on. And we've got lots of papers out there about that. So yeah. Yeah. I mean, does it make sense that nature would work through these systems of synergy? Like, what do you, Oh, what, what do you a leading question. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think it does. I mean, right. That we have plants co-evolving with the things that consume them. And so you can imagine situations where, for example, um, plants make compounds that kill bacteria. Bacteria also have a mechanism of protecting themselves against those antimicrobial compounds by one of the main mechanisms that bacteria use to protect themselves is to pump the molecules back out of their cells again. So no matter mm -hmm. how much you add, the plant can just get rid of it. And I'm sorry, the bacterial cell can just get rid of whatever molecule the plant is using to try to kill it. And then it, over time, um, the bacteria become even more resistant because they get better and better at pumping these molecules out. So what's a plant to do? Well, one thing plants have done then is to co-evolve so that they can produce molecules that gum up the pumps in the bacterial cells and prevent that resistance mechanism. So that's just mm -hmm. one example of sort of a co-evolution or at least a hypothesized co-evolution between bacteria and plants where the plant has made something that kills the bacteria. The bacteria have made a way to protect themselves against it. The plant have made a way to overcome that protection. And so that continues and you end up with these complex mechanisms and it's much harder for let's say a bacterium to develop resistance if there's many ways that it's being targeted than if it's just a single way. And so that's one of the arguments people use for these complex multi-molecule therapies having an advantage. And we see that play out really also in, in medicine, in the way medicines are being used today. For example, if we're thinking about treating HIV, we don't just use a single antiviral, we use multiple antivirals in a sort of a cocktail um, to treat HIV. And that's more effective because if the virus becomes resistant to one of the molecules, it um, can still be killed with the other molecules. These are such beautiful examples. Yeah, I 100% agree. There's, there's so much that we can learn from these kind of multi-pronged attacks on disease yes. you know, from plants. And, you know, as you were speaking, it just, I was thinking back to some of the things that traditional healers have shared with me over the years in different, in different cultures, different languages, different communities. And one thing that tends to be to hold true among many healers I've spoken to, whether it's in the Amazon or in North Africa or in the Balkans has been this idea of of reading the language of plants and of nature. And in some aspects, it sounds a bit crazy of like, well, the plants are speaking to me or they're speaking to other organisms in their environment. But the more I learn about chemistry, the more I see that really it's that chemical language that they're speaking because plants are sessile, they can't move. And, you know, they're communicating through organisms in the soil, all these, you know, organisms that are, they're encountering with their roots to nematodes, to mammals, to, other plants, you know, I, there's all this chatter happening. And somehow, I think in many traditional cultures, 
over time, healers have learned to read those signals. Um, and now we're learning to read them, I think, as, as chemists in the lab with uh, fancy tools. But it's the same principle, I think, at the, at the very end. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And when we think about about the study of science, we really continue to uncover <clears throat> how interconnected everything is. And that's the same thing that we come up with when we look at different spiritual or religious practices as well. It's this concept of everything being connected. And the more the more we dig, the more we find that there are connections we didn't even know about. So it's very fascinating. Yeah. It's very cool. Very cool. Um, okay, I'm going to shift gears a little bit. Because I want to talk about another element of science that I think is so important. And that's, you know, the life of being a scientist. <laughs> because, because we are humans, too. We're not robots, you know, doing science. And I think, you know, I really, as I, I, I wrote to you about this, I really admired the piece you wrote for Motherwell about um, your experience as a mom and a scientist and how all that comes together um, I was wondering, could you could you share with us some nuggets from that story? Um, you know, what what are some of the pieces of wisdom that you can offer to people that are tuning in that might be women or might be underrepresented in science and are are looking um, for inspiration? Hmm. Well, I guess what I would say first is that you're not alone. <laughs> and maybe yes. that's sort of the mo the motivation for writing and talking about these experiences is, and I know obviously you're such a role model for this, Cassie, in writing your memoir, um, is to, to find resonance with each other in the realization that the things we're struggling with are, are human and that we are all humans and that we can come across as presenting a very polished image sometimes, but underneath the mm -hmm. surface, things are complicated and messy. And that piece that I wrote for Motherwell talks about my experience trying to have a breastfeeding infant and work in a chemistry lab and teach classes and you know the, the challenges of leaving him and worrying that he was gonna be ruined by me leaving him behind and, um, and really, struggling with the question of whether I even wanted to continue as a scientist once I became a mother um, and how hard those early years were. And, you know, I feel like it's important to talk about that because it is often we seem to have the pressure of coming across as having it together. And that's part of getting ahead, I guess, is to present this polished image. But then over time, um, when we have gotten to the point of security in our positions, I think it's important to start changing the culture by talking about the fact that it's really not always that simple. Um, yeah, absolutely. No, I think these are, I think these are stories that men and women need to hear. Absolutely. Um, everybody just, needs to hear. Yeah, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, just so you know what, what, what it's, you know, like, and make sure that you're the environment where science is being done, where education is being shared, that it's an equitable um, environment. Yeah, yeah, and of course, everybody's experience is different, right? I think it's important mm -hmm. to mention that as well, but there are yeah. some things that cut across. And of course, for a lot of women, considering whether to pursue a career in science, one of the questions that comes up is, can you have a family and be a scientist? And you know, historically, the people having the families were not the people who were doing science, and we're changing that. But um, it's been a, a slow road. Um, so I think 
at the same time, we can say that uh, that you and I can both say that it is possible. <laughs> it is possible. And yeah. also we can turn around and try to think about ways to change that culture and that environment to make it more supportive of families and of people who come with all kinds of different challenges to try to do science. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's funny thinking about this conference that, that you know, we're planning that you'll be at, I'll be at um, this June is... You know, this is the same society where I had taken my nursing infant to meetings and just having that kind of welcoming um, environment, which is not always the case in many scientific conferences, you can't bring along a baby. <laughs> but in this one, you know, I had help, you know, with people watching watching my 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 infant while I was able to go on the stage and then take him back after that. Nice. It was really it was really great. And I've also had really horrible stories of traveling, like blowing up my breast pump with the wrong voltage <laughs> in Europe. Oh no. <laughs> It was like desperate times. It was like at the time it was the worst imaginable thing. And now I kind of can look back and kind of laugh about it, but it was not funny at the time. It's not good to be stranded without your breast pump. Exactly. So there are all these, there's all these stories. It's so, it's so refreshing um, to share those because I think that's something that, you know, anyone, anyone that's, that's faced with, you know, a challenging, a challenging job, whether it's science or, or absolutely in any, in any field where it's, it's highly competitive. These are, these are things we can, we can do better at, at supporting um, each other. Yeah. yeah. And part of it is just to break the silence on the fact that these are things that we're dealing with, because I think, you know, we're often told like as women, oh, don't have pictures of your kids in your office because people will think you're going to be less effective because you're a mom mm-hmm. or whatever. And so I think even just normalizing that conversation of like, oh, I'm leaving work right now because I need to pick up my kid at school and, you know, I'll see you tomorrow. That's important to say, but we can say that when we have a comfortable tenured position as a as a professor. Mm-hmm. And we need to be saying that so that other people can also say that. <laughs> yeah, it's harder when you don't have a position of power. It's I think very this is hard. something we see we see across the board. It, it's easier to talk about diversity and how to support one another when you're in the power seat. It's a lot Absolutely. harder when you're the one struggling through it. And so Absolutely. huge respect for those that do, you know, from every level. It's it's Absolutely. so yeah, it's so important. Well, I have a couple more questions. I know we're getting close to the end of our of our hour, but um, I guess first is, you know, what's exciting happening in your lab? You always have such amazing things going on in your lab. Like, you know, I love reading the papers you come out with. Anything new that I should keep an eye out for that you want to share with everybody? Well, we actually, we were talking about Synergy earlier today. And one of the mm-hmm. things I'm really excited about is that our group has actually just recently developed a totally new model for how to look at Synergy and how to look at the combinations of molecules that are responsible for the effect of a botanical medicine. And I identify those combinations. And essentially it relies on using a new mathematical treatment of the data that is not particularly difficult to do that Mm -hmm. really allows us to find synergists in cases where in the past we were not able to do so. So that I'm actually really excited about. Uh, And we have a paper that's under review at the Journal of Natural Products that'll be coming out on that soon. So I'm really looking forward to seeing that come out. Uh, One of the things that's come out of that paper is we see um, synergy between plants that produce the molecule berberine, including like say golden seal, which is mm-hmm. I've talked to you about before, um, that is able to kill bacteria and a molecule that's in peppers, which probably actually people know this molecule because it's called capsaicin. Mm-hmm. Um, and capsaicin is what makes peppers hot. And it turns out that 
the um, example I was giving earlier of, of there being molecules that can inhibit the ability of the bacteria to pump things out and protect themselves, capsaicin is one of those molecules and other capsaicinoids from peppers. And so we've been looking at that recently, at this synergy between golden seal and pepper extracts. And nice. our new model was able to find those com synergistic combinations in mixtures. So we're kind of excited about that. Oh, that's really exciting. I can't wait to read that. That's great. Yay. You're okay. like one of three people that can't wait to read that. I'm like, I'm like sanitary. <laughs> I, yeah, no, I mean, that's just, it. it's it's not just three. I can guarantee you. There are it lots of people. Maybe it's, maybe it's six. <laughs> I mean, this is one of the big challenges we face is just sorting through these massive amounts yes. of data and figuring yes. out, you know, this, you know, plants talk a lot. They're chatterboxes, right? So and they're talking through all these thousands of molecules. So being able to pick out which ones are most important to the activity is a huge challenge. And so I'm really excited to take a look at your new method. That's great. great. Cool. Okay. And last question is, and this is what I'm, I'm really trying to aim to ask all of my um, guests this year. And can you share, share with us a nice recipe? It could be for making a medicinal tincture. It could be something you like to cook at home. You know, what, what kind of recipe might you share with us today? Oh, okay. So one thing I, one thing I've been thinking about lately is the importance, not just of what we eat, but of our whole relationship with plants mm -hmm. and the possibility of going all the way from growing something from a seed to harvesting it, to consuming it. And I think um, a lot of the medicinal benefit is in that process more so than just the product. So I guess what I would say is the advice that Robin Khmer, our the keynote lecturer who's going to be presenting at the Society for Economic Botany um, conference gives, which is grow a garden, um, mm -hmm. is your best uh, way of improving your life. And I'm very excited for spring and for gardening. So I think my advice would be grow a garden. And maybe if you feel like it, plant some basil, because my favorite thing to do is make pesto out of the basil I grow in my garden. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I love to combine pine nuts and basil leaves and olive oil and salt and lemon juice in my blender and make fresh pesto. And it's somehow different if you just pick the basil out of the garden than it is if you bought the basil at the grocery store. Even if you buy those basil plants in the pot, they're just not the same. So nice. I'm dreaming. I'm dreaming of summer and pesto right now. And <laughs> It's not quite warm enough to plant basil yet, but I'm excited to do that. Soon, soon. It will be very soon. Oh, yummy. That that definitely makes me hungry. I'm just envisioning this beautiful plate of pasta with fresh pesto. Okay. Mm, I have goals, goals for the spring and summer. Get get that basil growing. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks so much, Nadja, for coming on the show. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Yeah. All right. Um, thanks so much for listening to the show today. As you know, Foodie Pharmacology is a passion project and without any commercial sponsors, that means you get no commercials. Um, but that also means that we need some help covering the cost of running this show. You can do that by simply buying me a cup of coffee. You can head over to buymeacoffee.com slash foodiepharma. If you'd like to grab some fun podcast merchandise, that's also a really great way to support the show. You can find merch at mysterycontrol.com and just look up Foodie Pharmacology. Um, I want to thank our amazing producers, Rob Cohen and Christine Roth of Co-Conspiracy Entertainment for producing this show. And if you'd like to sign up for this amazing upcoming conference, lock in your early registration rates by visiting Society for Economic
Economic Botany and Society of Ethnobiology Joint Conference website. You can find it at at SEBotany on Twitter or by visiting my link tree at linktr.ee slash cquave. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy out there and I'll see you next time.